Good morning again, uh, 59th Street Church. As always, very, very good to see you and, and meet with you all here today. Um, and as we do meet today, I actually want to continue to move forward um, in our sermon series, um, Living Beyond the Self, um, which I think is actually a pretty appropriate topic since we're literally in the midst of the Lenten season. And for those of you who aren't too familiar uh, with the season of Lent, um, it's, a, it's, a traditional, uh, it's a traditional season where we practice uh, the spiritual act of giving something up for 40 days. Um, just as Jesus went without food for 40 days before he started his ministry. And during this time where, you know, we, where we fast from things, where we give something up, um, I've seen people give all sorts of things. You know, I've seen people give up their favorite food. I've seen people give up meat for 40 days. Um, in the past, I gave up Netflix and video games for 40 days. Uh, some people give up a sin that they're struggling with. Um, or maybe some people, if they're, if they're courageous, they'll literally go on a 40-day fast where they will eat no food uh, for 40 days like Jesus. And I think, of course, there's always the classic joke of giving up Lent for Lent. Basically, I'm going to give nothing up for this 40 days. But the thing is, you know, as, as people give things up, I, you know, I also see that they give things up for a variety of reasons as well. Um, some people kind of treat the season as uh, New Year's Resolution 2.0, uh, where they try to make some sort of significant change in their lives in these 40 days. I've seen other people do it out of pride, so they can kind of boast about what they're giving up. Um, but I've also seen other people use it as a way to eliminate an idol in their lives so that they can draw closer to God. And now, while these tradition, or while this tradition is, is pretty meaningful, I, I'm, I just want to invite us to delve a little bit deeper into the topic of what does it mean to give something up for God? But more importantly, why are we supposed to give things up for God? Is there, is there a spiritual significance behind it? Are our sacrifices made out of just obedience, or do they come from a desire to reflect God's holiness? And in the passage that we're going to read um, pretty shortly, we're actually going to come across a very famous story. Um, it's actually one of my favorite stories of a rich young man who has followed God's law to the best of his ability. However, when Jesus asks this young man to give something up, we're going to see a very interesting response from the young man, but we're also going to see a very important teaching that Jesus gives right after the man's response. And so let's take a look at our passage today. And it comes from Mark chapter 10, uh, verses 17 to 31. If you have your Bibles, you can, you can flip there. Um, otherwise, it's also on the screens as well. And it reads this. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. He said, good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered, no one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony, you shall not defraud, honor your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, all these I have kept since I was a boy. And Jesus looked at him and loved him and said, one thing you lack, go sell everything you have, and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. And at this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard it is for the rich to enter into the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his word, 
but Jesus continued to say, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter into the kingdom of God. And the disciples were even more amazed and said to each other, who then can be saved? And Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. And Peter spoke up, Lord, we have left everything to follow you. And truly, I tell you, Jesus replied, no one who has left home or brother or sister or mother or father or children or fields for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age, homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and fields, along with persecution and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. Love this passage. You know, for, for the past few years, you know, this is, this is one thing that I meditate and I reflect on. I often actually use this passage as a mirror to look at my own imperfections and my own faith because one of the most fundamental questions that this passage asks is this, what is your priority? I remember when um, I was super young in the faith, um, I came across, you know I, was, you know, I was reading through the Old Testament, I was trying to read things um, cover to cover, and I came across the story of King Solomon. And as I was reading it, one, one thing struck me above everything else in this story. Um, that one thing was that Solomon prayed to have wisdom to lead God's nation. And because Solomon prayed for wisdom instead of for riches or power, uh, God was so pleased with Solomon that God gave Solomon not just wisdom, uh, but vast amounts of wealth as well. And so after reading that story, I was like, oh, maybe there's a trick here to be rich. <laughs> and so I prayed to God, Lord, you know, if you can please give me wisdom, um, therefore I can be rich. Now, obviously, my priorities, they were not set straight. It wasn't really wisdom I wanted, but rather wealth. And so when we look back at our story, we see a very similar scenario of misplaced priorities. You see, it's a wonderful thing that this young man wanted eternal life, and it's a wonderful thing that he asked Jesus how to inherit it, but when Jesus looked into the man's heart, Jesus saw the true treasure in his heart. And it wasn't God's kingdom, it wasn't God, it wasn't following God. The true treasure in the man's heart was his vast amount of wealth. And so when Jesus asked the young man to give up his wealth, Scripture says that the young man walked away sad the young man's priority was shown. His wealth was more important to him than following Jesus. And so as a result, Jesus says these famous words where he says it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for, a rich, uh, than for someone who is rich to enter into the kingdom of God. Uh, now normally, you know, I, I would talk about the nuance of this passage or maybe some fancy Greek words that might pop up here and there. But what God really impressed me with as I was reading this, this passage, he really impressed me with this very, one very simple statement. God asked me this. He said, Brandon, be very, very careful what you wish for. You see, the thing is, intrinsically, there is nothing morally evil about wealth, right? Through wealth, we can do absolutely great things for God's kingdom. This church that we're in here today this is the result of people gathering their resources, gathering their money 
in order to create, to build a place of worship. And because of that money, this church has been here for over 100 years, and we are still continuing to bless our community. That is money worth spent. With money, we can also afford to send missionaries and support them as they bring the gospel message to foreign nations. With our money, with our wealth, we can continue to support our ministries here. We can continue to support our youth group uh, when they go on retreats and invest in their spiritual revival. You see, the thing is, money, at the end of the day, it's ultimately a tool. But why did God, through this passage, tell me this? Brandon, be very careful what you wish for. Because what we actually see in this passage is that even things that are beneficial for the kingdom of God, like money, can also simultaneously be a stumbling block for our faith. And it can also prevent us from completely following Jesus. And the reason for this is simple. Because what we wish for and what we desire is actually a reflection of where our hearts truly belong. See, the story of Judas in John chapter 12, he saw Mary take an expensive bottle of perfume to pour onto Jesus' feet. And Judas, he asked this, he said, why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It's worth a year's wage. And so if you translate that maybe to, you know, to our modern, modern time, you know, that bottle of perfume is like seventy, eighty thousand dollars $80,000. That thing is worth a lot of money. Why wasn't, Judas asked, why wasn't it sold to give to the poor? Sounds like a very good motive. But Judas's heart is shown because later in the passage it says this. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As a keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to whatever was put into it. Judas cared more about wealth than following Christ. And Judas's desire and Judas's wish for wealth, it came true. He got his money when he sold Jesus to the religious leaders. He wished for those 30 silver coins, and he got it. He forsook Christ, and as a result, he betrayed him, and Jesus died. Be very, very careful what you wish for. So as believers, we have to be extremely wise. Can the things we pray for, can the things we wish for, can the things that we work hard for simultaneously become a stumbling block in our faith that prevents us from developing a deep relationship with Christ? And the thing is, if Christ asked us to give up that one thing, do we not just have the courage, but do we also have the faith to say, yes, Lord, I will give it up? Or will we walk away sad? and continue to worship the things of this world instead of God. And I hope that as, as I ask these questions, God has maybe been revealing to you some, some stumbling blocks that are preventing you from developing a deeper relationship with him. Maybe God has, has been nudging you during this Lenten season to, to focus maybe perhaps on a real idol that has been holding you captive. But the thing about Lent is that if we do it incorrectly, we fall back to the same patterns. Um, it's not uncommon for us to give something up for 40 days and then completely relapse um, a few days after Easter, right? You know, I gave up video games, and then right after Easter, I'm like, oh, thank God, you know, time to, you know, eight-hour video game binge, here we go. And the reason why we fail is, is actually quite simple. See, the thing is, based on our willpower and based on our mental effort alone, we will always fail in the long term, 
You see, if giving these idols, you know, these stumbling blocks, if, if giving it up, you know, if, 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 if our, sorry, if our process of giving up these idols, if it's rooted in our willpower alone, the vast majority of humanity would fail. And this is why Jesus actually tells the crowd that it's easier for a camel to go through an eye of a needle. This is also why when the disciples asked, who then can be saved, Jesus replied, with man, it's impossible. We can't do it through our efforts alone. And this is a truth that I think we have all experienced in our lives. It's very, very hard for us to let go of things, extremely hard. I keep trying harder and harder. I, I continue to spend more and more of my willpower. And the thing is, I achieve success maybe for 40 days, maybe for 50 days, but then I fail. And so I try harder, and then I fail again. Every time I use my willpower alone to give up my stumbling box, to, to try to live a holy life, the only end result is anguish. The only end result is suffering, because I keep failing and failing and failing. And so not only is this process of giving things up for the Lord difficult, but it's actually altogether impossible because what I'm fighting against is not just bad habits here and there. What I'm really fighting against is the sinful nature that is in my heart, the sinful nature that is trying to constantly force me away from God. I'm fighting against the sinful nature that makes me do evil even when I don't want to do it. And the thing is, I cannot defeat it. I cannot master it but I don't have to. Why? Because Christ has defeated sin for me. And herein lies the secret to holiness. Because as Jesus said, with man, it is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. You see, through Christ's death on the cross, we actually inherit two things from him. We all understand and we are all taught that Christ's righteousness is given to us through his death, right? We actually read that um, a little bit earlier for our scripture reading, right? Christ's righteousness is given to us through his death and through his resurrection. And we all understand that as we belong to Christ and inherit his righteousness, we are no longer seen as guilty by God and we are now redeemed. We are now his children through inheriting God's righteousness, right? We all understand this extremely well since it is this inheritance of righteousness that leads us to salvation, right? We're taught this 365 days of the year. However, what we are not taught enough is that while we inherit God's righteousness, we also inherit his holiness, which leads to our sanctification, because Christ lived a perfect holy life that we couldn't, when we are unified with him in spirit, we inherit that holy life as well. And I know this sounds very abstract, um, and what do I mean by this? Well, let me, let me give you an analogy. Um, while I was in my mom's um, hometown in Ipoh, like two, three weeks ago, uh, there was this gorgeous lake there. It was, it was called, uh, in Malay, I think it's called Tasik Cherman. Very bad pronunciation, uh, but basically translates to mirror lake because it's, it's so clean. Um, it literally looks like, like a reflection, like literally looks like that. Um, and so, you know, as, as I was there, I, I was fortunate enough to, to go on a guided boat ride. And um, one of the ladies who's, who's kind of like driving the boat, she's also a conservationist there. She works there. And she's just telling us kind of like the history of this lake, like how it was formed 
And originally, um, during the, the British occupation of Malaysia, uh, they were actually building a mine over there to kind of you know, harvest all the precious metals. And the thing is, they would use all sorts of chemicals to you know, make explosives, they would use all sorts of chemicals to, to extract these precious metals that they're trying to mine. And all of these chemicals, you know, like, like where are we gonna throw it? Well, there's a lake right there, so you know, why not just throw it in there? And literally, the, the, the lake was so polluted that it, it became toxic to everything that it touched. But what was interesting about this lake is that underneath all that soil, they were actually underground streams of clean water that would bring fresh water into the lake. And so after the British left and after the mining projects were done, slowly, year after year, decade after decade, clean water would go into the lake more and more. And more of that toxic sludge, that toxic waste, would be washed away until it was completely gone. And if the worker, if she never told me that this lake used to be literally toxic sludge to begin with, I would have never known, because when I look at it, all I see is pure, clean water. And so likewise, when we are unified with God, when we are unified with his holiness, God's holiness becomes, begins to wash into our lives. Like streams of living water, it begins to wash away the toxic sludge in our lives. And what that looks like is we begin to no longer desire the things of this world because when we're united with him, we actually see things through God's point of view. And it's beautiful because everything begins to change. We no longer have to rely on our own efforts to make changes in our lives, but because of Christ's holiness that lives in me, that washes through me, it changes my life for me we begin to see with perfect clarity what this world really is. We begin to see with perfect clarity what wealth really is. We no longer see wealth as a means to control our lives. We no longer see wealth as a, as a means to attain peace in our lives. Wealth is no longer something idolized after, you know, you know because it's related to status. In pure holiness, I finally see, or we finally see, what wealth is. It's just a tool, a tool we use to make sure we don't starve, first of all, but more importantly, a tool that is supposed to be used to love others, to bless others. And so when Christ's holiness washes through me, not only does it change my bad habits, but it changes entirely my thought process on how I see, live, and move throughout this world. And all we have to do to allow God to grow us in holiness is to remain united with Christ, to remain united with Christ through the word, through prayer, and through fellowship, and also through worship as well. And the thing is, if there's anything, if there's anything we should be spending our willpower on, it is this, to remain united with Christ. If you want to hear more about unity with God through word and prayer, I actually invite you to listen to last week's sermon. And the thing is, as we remain united with Christ in holiness, not only do we begin to see the world like Paul, who sees all things as garbage in comparison to knowing Christ, but we also begin to see the truth of joy as well as we wait in eager anticipation for our reward and our treasure in heaven. In the final part of our passage today, 
Jesus actually promises us that as we sacrifice on his behalf, not only will we receive blessings in this world, but we will actually receive eternal life in the age to come. In Matthew chapter 6, Jesus also teaches us the idea that we are to store for ourselves treasures in heaven. And I think in the, in the past, I made, a, you know, I'll be honest, I made a very terrible mistake of teaching that we shouldn't desire to be saved in order to receive a reward. I taught that it is misguided to desire treasures in heaven and that a relationship with God is enough. That is actually a very bad teaching because even Jesus longingly hoped for a reward. All of the apostles, as they're about to be crucified, took hope that there is a reward prepared for them in heaven, a treasure stored up for them in heaven. Paul himself, who says that he's running the race, he's fighting the good fight, why does he run this race? In the anticipation of the prize that is at the end of the race, to receive the crown of glory. And only lately have I realized the importance and the joy of this, to receive a reward in heaven. You see, the thing is, Christianity is, is not a religion of misery. Christianity is not a religion of suffering where we have to give everything up and expect nothing in return. Christianity is about joy. Christianity is about hope. And it is this hope of our reward stored up for us in heaven that allows us, that gives us the strength to let go of the things in this world. It is that which allows us to fight the good fight, to endure trials of any kind, because we realize that God is storing something infinitely more wonderful, infinitely more valuable than anything that this world can offer. And so, brothers and sisters, as we come to the end of our sermon here today, I want to encourage us to live and to look beyond ourselves, as our sermon series is called to look beyond our desires and wishes for things in this world, but to keep our eyes and our hearts fixed on God and fixed on his kingdom, to fix our hearts on holiness, to fix our eyes on the eternal life that is promised to us, and to fix our eyes on the treasures that are promised for us in heaven as well. The thing is, I realize more and more that those who deeply long for their reward in heaven are actually people of great faith because these people see and understand the surpassing worth of the things in heaven compared to the things of this world. And because they see the surpassing worth of treasures in heaven, they live a life here where they're no longer slaves to their idols, where they're no longer slaves to their stumbling blocks, but they have been set free. And so brothers and sisters, as we're about to come uh, together for a time of prayer, um, why don't we just pray for that today? to see the surpassing worth of Christ and his kingdom, to desire to be united with God, to desire the things not of this world, but of his world. And so please, join me for a time of prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we want to first thank you and, and, and praise you for the fact that um, you even came to save us. Um, we see within our hearts that, that not only do we constantly try to turn away from you, but that we place so many things as, as more important than you. Father, help us to see your son more clearly. Let us fix our eyes on him and on his promises for us. Let us fix our eyes on the new life that can be found in you. And so I pray, Lord, that, uh, that as we leave this building today, that you'll continue to work within our hearts to put you first above all things. Help us, Father, to give up these idols in our lives. Help us, Father, to, to, to be able to see with perfect clarity the, the destruction that it brings into our lives. 
And so, Father, I just want to thank you for everything that you've done for us. I thank you that through our union in you, we attain not just righteousness, but holiness as well. And so, Father, change our lives today. Allow us to live completely in you. I pray all of this in your precious son's name. Amen.